Thanks, Jen. Good morning, everyone. Just um, before we get into the Bible reading, I thought it would be a good idea just to recap. I know people have been away on holidays, and um, we've been looking at the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. So have it open in front of you. Um, two weeks ago, we started, uh, we were looking at uh, this really critical point in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who do you say I am? It's in Matthew 16. I reckon it's a great question for us and one that the Gospels really force us to ask. And we need to ask it of ourselves. Who do we think Jesus is? Well, in Matthew 16, um, Simon Peter, one of the disciples, nails the answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Uh, It gets exactly right. And from that point on, Jesus starts explaining what's going to happen to him. He's going to suffer, die. He's going to rise again in three days. And can you imagine the disciples just scratching their head and Simon Peter, who nailed the question, who am I so beautifully, now gets it spectacularly wrong. And he confronts Jesus and says, don't say that. Don't say you're going to die. Jesus' response to him, if you'll remember, was quite interesting. He says, Simon Peter, you don't have the things of God in mind, but the things of the world. You're a stumbling block to me. In fact, he says, get behind me, Satan. It's a pretty interesting thing. In fact, have a look at it in verse 24 of chapter 16. Um, Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What extraordinary thing for Jesus to say. Here he's really flipping the world's values and the kingdom's values. It's a, it's a reversal. Take up your cross. Okay, so that's in chapter 16. Then we come across to chapter 17, and there's lots in there, but just one point I want to remind you of. Last week we talked about the transfiguration. So this is that moment where, as if to confirm Simon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus' fleshly humanity is momentarily peeled back to reveal his glorious divine nature shining out. And the voice of God interrupts the mumbled confusion of the disciples. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's listen to Jesus now as we hear the Bible being read. Jackson, come up and read to us from chapter 18. And um, then we'll jump up and we'll have uh, a good look at the first half of this chapter. Jesus, thanks. Uh, So today's reading can be found in page uh, 1530. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the, low, the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large milestone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person that, uh, through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown in, into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, 
Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not desire one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the other one that, that wandered off? And if he finds her, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the, the other ninety-nine that did, that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I thought today would start with a bit of congregational participation. This is where everyone starts to feel nervous, right? I've got a question for you, and what I want is this: Can the person, or can the, can you stand up if you are the most humble person here? No, oh, thank you. We have one. <laughs> I think that was in jest by look at Gary's face. <laughs> Uh, it is a bit awkward. Imagine if uh, he, was in, he, he was serious. Well, let's give him applause and make him feel good about himself. Uh, I think it would have been perhaps even more awkward if two people stood up. Yeah, uh-oh. Someone's lying and someone's really humble. Or perhaps they'll be, oh, no, no, you're the most humble. No, you, you stay. No, no, you're the most humble. Uh, it's a bit of an awkward, or would have been an awkward moment, a shocking moment. Um, in fact, chapter 18 starts off with a pretty shocking question, doesn't it? The disciples ask Jesus, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I've always taken this to be kind of like a bit of a, a prideful question. I've always imagined the disciples have really kind of, you know, got it wrong here. They're asking Jesus like little puppy dogs bouncing around, pick me, pick me, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Um, perhaps a more uh, gentle reading of the question is that they've just been trying to get their minds around Jesus' teaching. I mean, Jesus has been teaching them things like the first, the, the first will be last. Uh, he's been teaching them things like, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, the Son of Man must die and suffer and rise again. Uh, I wonder if the disciples actually, their question is a bit more like just trying to make sense of what Jesus has been going on about. Jesus, given all this, who then will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a kind of a strange question either way. And, and however we take it, the answer Jesus gives is really profound, really difficult actually to apply. And he, he uses the child as an illustration point. So it's a bit like a kid's talk, um, which is always good. He doesn't get one to dress up as a sheep, but he uses the child as the illustration. All right, so let's have a look at what Jesus says. In Matthew 18, have a look with me in verse 2 and 3. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change to become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Become like a little child? I wonder what it is about a child that Jesus wants his followers to emulate. I don't know about you, I love my kids, but words like petulant come to mind, needy, demanding. What is it that we're meant to be like? Well, Jesus helps us by explaining it in the next verse. In verse 4, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's the lowly position of the child that's important, the humility of the child. I wonder if this illustration is lost on us a little bit 
in our current context. So today, perhaps more than any other point in human history, children are really kind of put up on a pedestal. In fact, we idolise childhood. Um, That's probably not a bad thing, but as Christians, I guess we need to be a bit careful, don't we, that we don't place our kids as a higher priority in our lives than our relationship with God. So today, children perhaps are viewed as a little bit differently to they were in Jesus' time. But here, in Matthew 18, Jesus places that child amongst them as an illustration of one that is, has a lowly position. You know, it's just a child. And children have no power or privilege, prestige or presence. You know, a child is vulnerable, um, needy, dependent, last. I think it's these qualities of the humility of a child that Jesus is saying, you need to become like this. You need to become like this to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's another kingdom reversal, actually, isn't it? So Jesus is flipping our worldly values of what is prestigious and first upside down. And to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be humble, like a child. Let's just allow this to sink in a little bit. Christians... Those who trust in Jesus are to be kingdom children. There's no other option. We can only come to God like a child, as dependent, needy, vulnerable, knowing we need Him. Don't come to God with full hands, you know, like as if we're making an offering. God, accept me. Here's something I can give you. It seems like a silly thing, but we, we do do this very... It's a very human thing to do. It's like we're trying to make a transaction with God to gain the riches of the kingdom. Do you know what I mean? It's like we need to quieten that little voice in our hearts that says, God will accept me because I'm a good person. No. I wonder if it's something like this. God will accept me because I'm, I'm generous. You know, I'm going to help balance the church budget. Actually, do help us balance the church budget, but uh, don't don't do it because you want to gain God's grace, but actually do it because uh, out of a love for the other kingdom children that are here and the ones that haven't even come yet, the ones we don't know. It is is silly when we think about it, that we would try and uh, earn God's grace with something that we can give him when, in fact, he already owns everything. And yet, when from a position of humility, like a child, we come to God and acknowledge our need, acknowledge that we have nothing to offer and we just need Him to fix it all, and He calls us His precious children, He accepts us, He forgives us, He welcomes us, and He rejoices over us like that lost sheep in the kids' talk. Okay, so we are kingdom children. It's the first kind of big point. Um, from here, there's a couple of implications of being kingdom children that I'd like us to kind of work out from the passage. So Christian believers are kingdom children, and here's our first implication. We're precious to God, and we're to welcome one another. We're precious to God, like his kids, and we're to welcome one another. Verse 5 of Matthew 18 reads, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
Keep remembering that child here is an illustration of a child, but also is kingdom children, adults who trust in Jesus like kids. Whoever welcomes one of these welcomes me. So we're to welcome and care for one another as if we're welcoming Jesus. We're valuable as God's children. The person next to you is valuable as God's child. Welcome them. Christians have a special role to play in each other's lives. I think it actually is different to the role we're to play um, in our friendships with outsiders whom we're trying to win over to to understand the goodness of God. With Christians, we're, we're brothers and sisters. We're kingdom children, siblings together. There's a special role. So how are we going to welcome each other in this way? We need to actually get to know each other. We need to come to church regularly. We need to get involved in the lives of our spiritual family and love one another. Okay, so we're kingdom children, so let's welcome each other like Jesus, his fellow children. Second implication of being kingdom children is that we're to be spiritual guards for one another. We should be on the lookout for each other's spiritual welfare. So kingdom children are by nature strangers in a strange land. We don't belong here. We're a long way from home, that is heaven, and there are stumbling blocks in this world that we need to avoid. Things that can cause us to trip up and make us forget who we are, who we belong to. Do you notice in the reading that Jack did for us that Jesus doesn't tread lightly when it comes to people who put stumbling blocks in the way of his kingdom children? The words seem pretty violent, actually, pretty horrific. Listen to the severity of the words um, in verses, say, Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7. I'll read it for us. Here's Jesus talking about his kingdom children. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, well, it would be better for them to put a large millstone hung around their neck and for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Harsh language. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Harsh words, those that threaten God's kingdom children are on thin ice. There's judgment there. Can you hear the Father heart of God beating behind these words though? It's a strong warning. It's like he's saying, don't you dare threaten my kids. Have you ever seen um, a parent go into bat for their children? It can be a fearsome thing, like maybe standing on the side of a soccer field uh, and it's like, you kicked my kid. (laughs) They get angry. You see it in their face. There's this kind of instant desire to protect and defend them. Uh, I was thinking, trying to work an example when this has happened for us. My wife Jen and I once, um, it's just a small thing, but we were at a a school sports day and our son was going up for the high jump um, and he runs up and jumps and just slams into the bar. And we, were, we weren't disappointed that he tried and failed. But we reacted when another kid called out, Cameron's no good at sport. And both of us, it was this awkward little moment. We're both trying to kind of just hold each other back. Like if you, know, if you feel that kind of fierce defense, how dare you? It's okay. There's another child. It's okay. That's an awkward moment. Uh, I think it's a little bit like that in this passage. We see the fierce passion of God for his children when they're under threat. He doesn't want any of them to be harmed. He doesn't want any of them to even stub their toe spiritually. 
Do you notice the passage here doesn't really explain what the stumbling blocks might be? We've got to kind of make some inferences here, I think. I take it that stumbling blocks are things which cause people to kind of turn away from their father God, become maybe like that lost sheep in the, in the little parable. Stumbling blocks are things that cause people to trip up in their spiritual walk, threaten their faith. could be like the lost sheep in that verses 10 to 14. The other thing it could be is that the significant sin stumbling blocks within the church, uh, the bit we didn't read from verse 15 and on kind of describes that almost like a process for dealing with sin in the church or a persistent sin in the church. So it could be the stumbling block is one of those as well. In our current context, sadly, we don't have to think too hard to find examples of stumbling blocks that have caused you know, big issues for the church. And how many people just in Adelaide have walked away from God because of the stories of child abuse that have sadly occurred in some sections of the church? How God's heart must ache when with divine clarity he sees the ever-increasing ripples of damage that have been caused because of abuse in the church. That's just one example in one city. So clearly there are big-ticket Stumbling block issues that we need to, to be on guard for and watch out for. But let's bring it a little bit closer to home as well. There are things that cause people to turn away from God um, that we're not necessarily immune to on a weekly kind of way. So broken relationships. I mean, people leave churches and forget about God because they, they see that church is just full of angry people. Uh, hurt, arrogance. I think hypocrisy in the church is a big one too. Hypocrisy in the church, but also what about for the kids? Hypocrisy in the home where, where parents will confess Christ on a Sunday but act very differently on the rest of the week. So these are the little things that are common to all people that can cause Christians to trip up. We need to be on guard for these ones and watch out for each other. And what can be done? Well, God has made us as his kingdom children and family. And I think one of the best ways to, to guard each other spiritually against stumbling blocks is to look out for each other in Christian family community. So we're made for each other. Uh, we need to look out for each other. I think in Adelaide, in fact in Australia, we have more of an individualistic culture than a communal or corporate culture as in some countries. And this, I think this is something we just need to fight against a little bit in the church, be a bit countercultural. It's not necessarily in our, at least our Anglo-Australian mindsets to kind of think about the other as much as it is perhaps for other cultures. So we need to be a bit countercultural and work out how, how can we connect with each other? How can we allow ourselves to be a bit vulnerable in the way we talk to each other, get to know each other. You know, ask yourself, how many people in your life have got permission to ask perhaps more probing questions? Like, you know, how are you going with this hard thing? You know, how are you going with your prayer? Do you have people in your life that can comfortably ask those sort of questions? You know, you're going through a really hard time at the moment. You know, what can I do to be a support? And let's be vulnerable with each other and, um, as we get to know each other and build those kind of family relationships within the church so that we can be spiritual guards. And we need to take sin very seriously. 
Now, this passage couldn't use stronger language to talk about it. How serious are we to take sin? And we're to chop it out, treat it like cancer. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or feet and be thrown into eternal fire. It's not comfortable words. <laughs> What's going on in that little section? Cutting off hands and feet. It's a fairly gruesome kind of teaching, isn't it? What does Jesus mean? I reckon there are two possible ways that we could read this. Two different possible interpretations of this cutty off section all right the first one uh, it could be that what Jesus is talking about is cutting off a person from within the community of believers who is causing a significant stumbling block issue so it's like he's an external threat to the believer and, and it's got to the point where that just needs to be removed from the body of Christ right, that's one possible way of reading it the other possible way of reading it is that it's talking about our own personal individual sin um, so we need to deal with sin very seriously in our lives. Both are actually, I think, reasonable ways of reading the passage. Can I just explain each of them in turn? So for the first reading, the cutting off of hands is talking about cutting off a person from within our community who's a significant sin stumbling block. The reason why I think it could be that one is the context. So we've just had, prior to this, this section, Jesus talked about if anyone causes one of mine to stumble. Okay, that's an external threat. If anyone, it's a person. Uh, we've got, you know, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Again, it's an individual, external to the individual, uh, to the person who needs to be removed. And then even further on in verse 15 following, we get that section that is, here's how to deal with persistent public sin in the church. Just a note on that, I'm not really teaching on that verse 15 bit, um, but it is interesting to see that the priority of the process outlined there of you know, what to do, bring if someone harbours sin, then uh, bring one or two people to them and then maybe present it to the church and then treat them a bit like a Pharisee or an outsider. It's, it's good to note that that is um, written in a way that prioritises grace so even in the process of dealing with an individual who's a sin-stumbling block in the church, the priority is to win them over. They could be a lost sheep that we need to bring back. There could be a kingdom child as well. So it's just good to note. So that's the first thing. It could be cutting off hands is about removing people from the community, although there's significant caveats in the passage about it. The other way of reading it is probably more common. And the way they're talking out there is uh, dealing with your own personal sin very seriously. The reason why I think this is a good reading as well is because Jesus has already used this, these exact words in Matthew to describe personal sin. If you flick back to Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes uh, the law and expands on it. So this is page 1506. And he's talking about murder and, and divorce and oaths, and he talks about adultery using the same words. Uh, I think it starts in verse 27 of chapter 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, etc. You know, if your hand causes, your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, 
throw it away. It's the same phrase, the same word as we get in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 5, it's clearly talking about personal sin. So it well could be as well, couldn't it, that this section is talking about we just need to deal with our personal sin very seriously, take it deadly seriously. Okay. However we understand Matthew 18, 8 to 9, I don't think we can take it literally that we should actually cut off a body part. I mean, it wouldn't work if we tried. Imagine uh, if I had a naughty kicking foot and every time someone bent over to pick something up, whoop, there goes my foot, you know, it's happened again. Oh, I'm sorry, it's my kicking foot, it's causing you a problem. Okay, the best thing to do is just to cut it off. Of course then, it's silly, isn't it? I'd have crutches and I'd use my crutches for hitting someone at the backside instead. It doesn't make sense. Cutting out one eye doesn't make us blind. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an analogy to talk about the seriousness of sin. Sin, of course, is a heart problem, not a hand problem or an eye problem. The point is to take it seriously. There are stumbling blocks for us in the world that we need to watch out for. Uh, at some points in our life, we're more susceptible to them than others. That's why it's good when we care for each other. I remember a time, actually when I was a kid, my dad um, often would get a pile of junk. This is growing up in country, a whaler. We'd get a pile of junk and say, it's time to go to the dump. So it'd be a Saturday morning, load all the trash into the trailer, off we'd go to the dump. It was always a good trip because we'd, we'd chuck out the rubbish and then come home with interesting rubbish. So you know, this tr- it was like a trade, you know, the whaler tip. Um, one of these trips, I, I don't know, I must have been 12 or 13, we went to the dump to drop stuff off, we were getting ready to leave, and I literally stumbled or tripped up on a pornographic magazine that was just near the car where we'd parked. At that, at that point in my life, you know, here's the temptation, here's the opportunity, I picked it up. I put it under the mat in the footwell of the car and we took it home. Now, we're driving home, I can feel, my, feel the burning rubber under my feet and this floor mat as I'm hiding this naughty magazine and going home. Uh, today... Just that particular stumbling block. You don't have to go to the dump and trip on a magazine. It's any kid with a phone. It's one click away. How much more vulnerable and just in that one way are kids, actually adults as well, in that particular area? There are stumbling blocks everywhere that we need to watch out for. And they can provide such big distractions to God's children, sins which cause them to turn away from God perhaps will not come to him in repentance quick enough. The Bible's realistic about the world. These things must come, talking about stumbling blocks. It's a messy place, and it feels to us like it's only ever getting worse. Sometimes it feels like there are more stumbling blocks and pitfalls out there than there are straight paths. But remember who we are? We're kingdom children, the world is upside down for us. We shouldn't be surprised or alarmed to discover that there are tripping hazards. God has got us and we're secure. His forgiveness is readily available for people who humbly come to him knowing that it's messy and we need his forgiveness. And his forgiveness is available because Christ died and rose again to to heal us and forgive us and take away the punishment for the times when we trip and trip and trip up in our spiritual walk. We need to come to him in repentance humbly. God has got us 
He doesn't want any of his kingdom children to perish. His fierce judgment is always coupled with fierce love and grace. Have a look at Matthew 18, verses 12 to 14. This is a nice way to finish up. Hear the the heart of God in this passage as well. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. When kingdom children stumble, God seeks them out. He hunts for them. And when he finds them, he rejoices. He wants us, as we welcome one another and guard each other, to be about that, bringing his lost sheep in, stopping them from wandering away. Kingdom children... We come to God equally humble. Look after each other, welcome each other, and be spiritual guards for one another. Why don't I pray? Gracious God, we know that we need you. There's nothing we can offer to win your favour. Please help us to be humble, like child, knowing that we bring nothing to the table, Thank you that you love us and seek us out. Help us to look after each other as your kids, people welcoming each other and looking out for each other's spiritual well-being. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we did have one question come in today. Someone was reading the passage really well and realised I did say nothing about one verse. It's verse 10. I skipped it because it's tricky. Uh, it says, it's never a good idea, by the way. The whole Bible is useful and teaching and correcting. Uh, let's have a look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of the Father in heaven. So the question was pretty much, what's going on there? Do the kids have guardian angels? It's a good question. Maybe. I don't really know is my answer. But I do know that I, when I looked at this, this is the only verse in the Bible that suggests that, that there might be guardian angels for kids or for people. Uh, there's lots of verses that talk about angels as messengers. They represent um, kings and, and um, they do lots of things in Scripture. But this is the only one that talks this, about this idea maybe of being, of being guardian angels. I know that we do need to be a bit careful about building a theology around one verse. Um, it doesn't mean that we should take it out. It just means we've got to work a bit harder uh, to look at the whole council of Scripture to work out what might be going on. Other people might have a better answer. I just think sometimes it's okay to say, I just I don't know. I do... Do you think there's one verse worth reading? And this is in Colossians chapter 2. It comes in the context of talking about freedom from human rules and, and drinks, etc. And then we get this verse. It's a chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility, practical for today, do not anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person, person also goes into great details about what they have seen. They are puffed up and with idle notions by the, uh, puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. So here, the worship of angels is like a 
stumbling block. Uh, I don't think I want to say much more than that because I don't want to go beyond what I'm comfortable saying. Are there guardian angels? We'll find out, I guess. Certainly we don't need them. We have a, a representation much better than angels in heaven, the Son of God who petitions our needs to God alone. So thanks for the question. It was a good one. And Jack.